Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's football finance expert, Kieran Maguire. Uh, And Kieran, if it sounds like there's a spring in my step, it's because autumn's on the way and because your game against Chelsea had 2,500 fans in attendance. Yesterday, I imagine the car park must have been full of Audis. It was indeed. Uh, some of some of them with uh, ambient lighting uh, dashboards as well, no doubt, in the new Audi A3. <laughs> that will teach those people that say we can't act properly. Did you, did you go, by the way? Uh, no, I was working. Oh, okay. Unfortunately, so uh, uh, I, I would have gone. Uh, I, I was watching it on a stream whilst working. Um, yeah, it's like keeping one eye on the match. Yeah, of course. But it's very encouraging that there were there were people back watching football again, and even, even I smiled at a, a photograph of the Brighton ground. So let's hope that's the start of something beautiful. Uh, Kieran, it's questions day, but one of our news stories uh, has many subclauses. It's a very big story, so I suspect we may not get to all our questions. So Matthew Honeyman, Mike Bernardi, Andrew Wilson, Dave Parker, and Colin Telford. You may have to make another uh, wait, wait, mate, mate, another week. That, that'll be, that's a very different pod, isn't it? You may have to wait another. You can make whenever you want, but you may have to wait another week. If so, apologies in advance. Please keep listening and not mating. Um, this first story, Kieran, has, has gone under the radar, pretty much outside most of South East London. But disgruntled Charlton fans are, are so fed up they've actually occupied the valleys stands and boardrooms and uh, disgruntled Charlton fans is, is a tautology obviously but this is a big step forward isn't it? Um, it, it is I think they're taking a, a non-violent direct action approach which uh, which I applaud yeah they have been quite innovative in their protests against previous owners um, I think it's always quite good to appear on this show once but when it's once a fortnight you normally know there's a series of bad news coming around and unfortunately Charlton are appearing far too regularly at present. This is in respect of the the present owners who are East Street Investments, owned by Tanun Niger and Matt Southall. And um, they uh, they bought the club for a pound um, in, uh, I think it was December. Uh, So what the Charlton fans have done is that they they managed to get access to the ground. They invaded the boardroom and they stuck up a a giant photograph of a pound coin. And and they've been dropping pound coins outside the ground, effectively saying our pound is worth far more than yours. Mm. Uh, The the club has lurched uh, from crisis to crisis. 
over the, the last few months. Um, the EFL, um, to give them some credit here, they have rejected the the new potential owners. I, I think uh, that they've identified there's an element of frying pan and fire uh, in respect of some of the potential people that, that, that are trying to buy the club. And again, Charlton fans, non-violent, direct action. Um, they invaded the offices of one of the potential owners who's been on the naughty boys list um, of the EFL. Um, they are hoping that uh, Thomas Sandgard, who is the, the Danish guy based in the States, is going to come in and sort this out. Um, but his view, I think, is that if he buys the club, he wants to buy everything. Presently, you've got Roland de Chachelet owning the stadium and the training ground. You've got somebody else owning the effectively the share of the club, which means that they're part of the EFL and therefore the squad and things of that nature. Uh, my real concern is that, that Charlton end up like Leeds or Portsmouth and become part of a a gigantic uh, pass-to-parcel activity. Um, we're hoping to get Thomas Sangard on the show if he, if he does take over. So it'll be interesting to see what his plans are. Um, so I, I've been in contact with him. So, you know, hope, let's A, hope he's a good guy uh, and there's no reason to think why that, that shouldn't be the case. Uh, and B, he can put this to bed. I mean, certainly reading what he's had to say, uh, up to date, uh, you know, he he does appear to understand the views of the fans. Yeah, and we know as well, Kieran. Historically, when Charlton fans get involved, things tend to happen. You know, back in the day when they started their own political party to get them back to the valley, and that was a great success. So maybe this is what it finally needs. This is the line in the sand that the fans have have drawn, and let's hope that um, it's it's more positive from now on. And we'll we'll try and talk to the potential new owner when he does take over. In the meantime, if any of the Charlton organisers want to speak to us, we'll happily do that as well. Now, um, our, our old friend, uh, in inverted commas, Berry owner Steve Dale, has posted, um, shall we say, interesting update on the club's website. And I think one thing we, we can say, Kieran, there are no algorithms possible to get that upgraded beyond a C-. Because, I mean, it's astonishingly badly written. But can you can you summarise what he said without using the word scumbag or wrong? Because we, we've got sponsors now, remember. Um, right. Well, this was a um, this was a posting. It started off with a 62 word sentence. Uh, <laughs> it had random use of capitals and he can't spell. But uh, Steve Dale claims to have a master plan where he's going to build a team from the bottom up. He's going to have a youth team and a first team. He's going to apply to play football somewhere. We don't know where in 2021, 22. So on the basis of that, he's going to organise monthly friendlies. Now, I don't know where these are going to take place because I suspect the council won't give a licence for uh, football to take place at Gig Lane. Uh, he's also claiming he's going to open the social club. Um, so you know, that would appear to be sort of, you know, sort of just on the right side of sane. Um, but then we have to question what happened afterwards. Um, he, he then goes on to criticise uh, Joy Hart, who is yeah. the, the fan who famously handcuffed herself to the stadium um, when when the EFL were about to destroy the club last year and, and expel it from the, the EFL. Um, he criticises the local paper, the Berry Times. Now, I've, I've read the Berry Times a lot, uh, A, because I lived in Manchester most of my life, um, but B, you know, the, the Berry story was quite a big one. He criticises the EFL. He criticises the local council. And then he goes on to criticise Greater Manchester Police, claiming that they've effectively 
uh, stiff the club by taking money for when police officers attend matches, which you know they, they should be paid. You know, you do a job. Mm. Um, so that was that, that wasn't very pleasant. Then he completely lost the plot. Um, he went on to um, launch, launch into a diatribe against the BBC, mm. um, something to do with license fees um, being wrong for old people. That's nothing to do with the BBC. That decision was made by the Chancellor. And he then claimed that the BBC was using the license fee to buy executive cars. Now, whether or not that includes the A3 with ambient lighting, I don't know. Um, but uh, he's launching that. And then he decided to launch into a criticism of land and hope and glory not being sung at the proms and said next they'll be trying to ban hymns and the bible mm. yeah it's it's an astonishing piece of uh, injured innocence uh it's about i gave i couldn't read it far from, i mean i thought his attack on joy hart somebody who was willing to do that to save her club was astonishing um uh, but it just degenerates into into basically gammon you know, everyone's against this nonsense, and it's it's there's nothing there. And he has a go at the people who want to run other Berry clubs, saying they've got nothing to do with Berry. There's there's nothing there that would fill the heart of any Steve Dale loyalist with with hope. Is there? I mean, it's just. And as for the the last night of the promise thing, it's just you know, you, the, people can't sing it because they're not in the building. Basically, singing <laughs> it's just never mind. But it's and, um, and he finished off by quoting Voltaire. Which, which I just thought was a work of genius. Well, that, I mean, that was a kind of... That's like seeing a really bad footballer do some keepy-uppies as he comes off the pitch at the end. I mean, that was, that was the final flourish. That was, um, anyway, there's Wigan, again, and this, there's bad news and good news for Wigan. The, the bad news, I, I presume, is that Wigan administrators have sold the training ground to Preston, but they've also said they're confident they will have a deal ready so that the club can start the new season, and that deal could include... The fans, because Caroline Molyneux, as you may recall, who was who gave us a brilliant interview, she's the chair of the supporters club, contacted us last night to say they're close to raising five hundred thousand pounds by tonight to buy a share in the club. That's that's superb news. Yeah. I mean, the the, the administrators. Um, they, they sold the training ground. Wigan apparently have two training grounds, one of which is quite good, one of which isn't. Um, so the one that they've sold to to Preston North End owner, or it could be Preston North End Football Club, I'm not quite sure, that went for £1.6 million. Um, the administrators have also sold quite a few of the players, which does make me a little bit twitchy in relation to how are Wigan going to a fair in League One next season, though I imagine most Ticks fans will be just pleased with a football club to support. Um, the asking price for the club is £4 million. So it looks as if uh, Wigan supporters and Caroline could be getting you know, a 10% share. Now, if they do get £4 million for it, and, and they do seem to be reasonably confident uh, of doing so, um, that would remove the 15-point penalty that you get if you don't pay your creditors uh, 25% of what they're due. Now, within that £4 million is three million pounds that is the value of um that is the value of the stadium and i think we ought to keep that in mind when we go on to some of our further stories yeah that's interesting and i, I mean it would be would be wonderful if um the Berry, uh, beg your pardon wigan supporters were to get a share in the club but obviously that's 
purely down to the new owners wanting them to have a share, isn't it? I mean, the administrators won't uh, be compulsorily forced to let them have a share, will they? I mean, if somebody comes along and says, I've got the money to buy the club, I don't want the fans involved, then the administrators will take that offer, won't they? That's correct. I mean, the administrators are legally obliged to accept the single biggest offer. Um, they, they did say that uh, they, they did it. They, they felt they had a good bidder earlier, um, but that was on the proviso that they'd stay in the championship, which was why Wigan had the appeal. Mm. Um, the good news is that they have managed to pay the, the August salaries and they've got enough money now from the sale of players and the sale of the training ground to guarantee the September salaries but um the third th- therefore the 31st of august deadline has effectively been kicked a little bit further into the into the grass um you know, with, with the with the administrators hoping to sell but there is no guarantee as, as you rightly said kevin that um the new owners would uh either a accept or b want uh yeah. fan involvement in terms of a minority share yeah, we will get Caroline back on the show if if they do get the, their wish and get a share in the club. Is there a scenario, Kieran, and and you know this as you were an administrator and you know the law, that's why I'm asking you a question. If if they don't get a new owner by the time the season starts, could the administrators then ask the supporters for the £500,000 they've raised to to help keep the club going till they do find an owner? Well, um, they, they could certainly ask or... Uh, as we saw uh, earlier on in the summer, the, the the money which was raised by the supporters group um, was effectively donated to the club for overheads, which didn't include player wages. Right. So, yeah, it, ultimately, it will come down to the decision made by the the fans group and the administrators as to whether they can get around the table. I mean, it, we don't know how much the, the administrators have sold players for. There's now been quite a few. Uh, you know, one lad, I think, went to Leeds for a million. I think we've signed somebody from them for half a million. So there, there's there's some you know decent fees to, to cover some of those overheads, which A, reduces the wage bill, and of course, B, gives the, the administrators money to, to cover uh, ongoing costs. Uh, obviously, that's a story we'll keep an eye on. Now, this is the story that may eat into question time. Um, Derby fans, I owe you an apology. I, I promised you nights full of sleep and rest and calm. Uh, I may have been premature. Now, I know because a little Baroness told me that you spent around 48 hours looking over the EFL report into the Derby County case. They were cleared of all charges, but... There is a bee buzzing in your bonnet, so let's go through it. Not in nearly as much detail as you did, because we've we've only got an hour, uh, <laughs> and I don't want the Baroness having a go at me for you not turning up for dinner. Um, what would so there's a few que- I've I've broken this down into questions on your request because otherwise you said it'd be a monologue. Um, what were the charges from the EFL first of all, specifically? Right. The charges were that uh, Derby County Football Club, when it sold. Um, uh, Pride Park Stadium to a company called Gellor Nuco 202 for £81 million that the stadium wasn't worth £81 million. Now, let's just go back to our previous story. Uh, the, the Wigan administrators are looking for three million quid for, for, for uh, the DW Stadium. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a surveyor, so I'm not qualified to comment. Um, it, it did seem um, slightly uh, unusually high. Um, but uh, 
Mel Morris, the, the new owner, the owner of uh, Gelo Norco, Nuco, who just coincidentally happens to be the owner of uh, Derby County Football Club, said he was going to convert it into a multi-use stadium with a covered, with a covered roof. Wow. So therefore, you know, perhaps have uh, the Foo Fighters and Taylor Swift appearing there uh, as part of their next world tour. Yeah, there's a little insight into your musical taste there, isn't there? It covers a lot of bases. Um, so was the, was the club totally cleared of all these charges then? Um, it, it was. I mean, the other charge was in relation to this uh, amortisation, uh, breaking the rules. And uh, to a certain extent, in my view, uh, Derby County could be seen to be the Pythagoras of amortisation in they that they've effectively said the world is round where everybody else thinks it's flat. Um, th- th- they've come up with a with a uh, very cunning scheme, as Baldrick would say, um, which uh, managed to reduce the, the the amortization cost by by thirty million pounds uh, in the three years to June twenty eighteen. And you know, if, if the auditors have signed off on that, then well, so be it. Uh, the the EFL protested that the that the scheme wasn't acceptable. Um, but uh, the uh, the judgment was in the favour of uh, the the football club, um, although they they did say that the accounts uh, in in relation to this particular issue were uh, and I quote at very least ambiguous and in reality incomplete and inaccurate. Mm. Do we by chance know which football team the independent partner who audited the club's accounts supports? Well, I went to take a look at the auditors and um, they they clearly, um, you know, and this is not, you know, this is what the critics have said, not what we are saying, of course. The critics have said that, that there's been a bit of uh, a very close relationship between the two parties because this firm of accountants, Smith Cooper, first of all, they, they help advise uh, Mel Morris when uh, taking over the club, perfectly entitled to that. He then appointed them as auditors, perfectly entitled to do that. Um, they They are one of the club sponsors. Um, they did have naming rights to uh, one of the stands and uh, the, the auditor uh, in charge uh, describes himself. This is Mr. James Dell describes himself as a passionate Derby County supporter. Mm. Now, that, that's fine. You know, you, you, that, there's nothing wrong with nothing wrong with that at all. But, you know, p- critics have said, well, surely that calls into question uh, the independence of the auditors, given that they were. You know, advised on the takeover, they are sponsors, they have the naming rights, they've acted for Mel Morris for more than 20 years. Does this mean that they're going to be uh, fairly friendly when it comes to uh, an accounting approach which has helped to increase profits by £30 million um, over the three years for the financial fair play period? There, you know, there's, there's no smoking gun on that. Mm-hmm. Um a friend of ours and a friend of the show, Neil Baskerville, got in touch, and he was one of a fair few people who asked whether the Derby way, as you've uh, described it in the past, was to use, for want of a better word, creative accounting to get into the Premier League, whereby the problem goes away. Um, well, the, the problem does sort of go away. Uh, I mean, we have seen uh, Queen's Park Rangers to a certain extent, but Bournemouth and Leicester City take the approach that um, if they take a a slightly more relaxed approach to the profitability and sustainability rules, then, um, you know, they get they get promoted and they really can't be touched 
by the EFL when the club is in the Premier League. And in relation to Leicester and Bournemouth, they both uh, they both were fined, and the fines did run into millions of pounds. But again, the critics will say, "Well, we'll hold on a minute." Um, you know, if you look at the millions, hundreds of millions of pounds that both clubs have earned as a result of being promoted, the fines amounted to to nothing more than a slap of the wrist. And, and if you if you take a look and see what Derby have done, uh, their wage bill was twelve million pounds in 2013, but it it quadrupled in five years to 47 million because Derby were trying to sign the players to get them promoted. And again, if you look at their player purchases in the three years before Mel Morris took over, they spent 14 million. In the first three years after, that figure had gone up to 66. Now, to me, that's that's a sign of an owner that wants to get his club promoted. Mm. Um, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, that's not a criticism. Uh, I think all owners want that. What's Mel Morris had to say since the uh, being cleared of all the charges? Well, um, I think it's fair to say he he was pretty unhappy. He accused the EFL of having an agenda against him. He described himself as being an enemy of the EFL state Um, and and that they've got an axe to grind against him personally. Um, uh, You know, these are quite, uh, you know, quite uh, cross comments. Now, it it could be that he feels that he's done nothing wrong. And, you know, on the basis of the the IDC verdict, he he is fine to do that. Um, But, yeah, I've got to be honest, the ESL, EFL, they're just carrying on their duties. That they, they don't have a personal like or dislike uh, of any one individual. Uh, finally, I mean, we could be here all day talking about this report, Kieran, and I, I know in an ideal world you would be, except, <laughs> except I can just hear the Baroness's foot tapping from here. But there's one detail which really quite startled me, because obviously, obviously I haven't read it. Um, Middlesbrough appeared 51 times in this report. Why was that? Yeah, um, well, I think it's fair to say that uh, Middlesbrough owner Steve Gibson um, and Mel Morris aren't the best of friends. So Middlesbrough certainly had had a lot of correspondence with the EFL uh, with regards to this. At one stage, they were threatening a private prosecution. Um, the EFL, to their credit, says, look, hold on, you know, we're, we're, the, we're the body in charge of football as far as these 71 stroke 72 clubs are concerned. Please let's get, get on with it. And uh, Middlesbrough were sort of eventually persuaded to to not launch that private prosecution. But um, I, I think the, the Middlesbrough versus Derby uh, championship match uh, this year, uh, if, I, if that's being televised, I think my my camera would <laughs> be on the would be on the director's box rather than what's happening on a pitch. To end, Kieran, just so Derby fans don't think that we have a personal axe to grind, why is it important for football that we talk about this in detail? Well, um, as fans, I think we're entitled to some form of transparency. Derby won because, first of all, I've got to be honest, the, the EFL legislation is poor. Right. It, it allows clubs to sell their stadia. Um, it it doesn't say that amortisation has to be uh, on a straight line basis. Derby had an excellent legal team. I've, you know, um, I, I know I've mentioned this guy's name before, but uh, their, their head QC, a guy called Nick DeMarco, um, you know, he's the type of guy, in my view, 
if, if you've got a if you've got a puppy in a locked room sat next to a big lump of poo, Nick DeMarco would get the puppy off being accused of doing the poo. You know, he's that good. Um, so they, they got an excellent team. And also um, the, the EFL's witnesses, their, their expert witnesses, were pretty rubbish. Um, they they had uh, a valuer who compared um, Pride Park to, to Morecambe and St. Helens rugby, uh, rugby ground when doing his valuation. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not saying it happens to be my club. If, if you're looking at the value of a modern stadium, well, there's one in Brighton, which is same size as Derby's, mm. and it costs £91 million. So yeah, you know, that gives you a rough idea of perhaps uh, what, what something would cost. Um, when he valued it, he, he valued it on the basis of Derby's average attendance, ignoring the capacity of the ground. Mm. It's a bit like saying, I'm going to value a, a house, which is five bedrooms, on two bedrooms because three of them aren't being used very yeah. often. So it just did seem to be uh, a bit crazy. And the, the, the other expert witness that they had, a guy called Professor Pope, which sounds to me like somebody from Cluedo, um, <laughs> the, the commission described him as being unfamiliar with the duties of an expert witness. Now, you know, excuse me, if, if you're an expert witness, you're supposed to be an expert. You should know what a witness is expected to be able to do. Mm. So, you know, it's a bit like having the Chuckle Brothers uh, on, on your side, you know, and, and as much as I love uh, you know, the Chuckle Brothers, God, God rest the soul of one of them, um, it's it's probably not going to get you very far in a court. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, but if you want somebody to step in a bucket, they'd be ideal. Um, <laughs> I, I'll be perfectly honest, I was a bit distracted in the last minute or two of that as I was trying to work out how Nick DeMarco would get the puppy off the charge without uh, claiming that he'd done the poo himself. But that's, uh, again, that's for another day. So good news for the people whose questions are at the end. We're only 25 minutes in, so we may get to you, but... Our first question, Kieran, uh, is from Neil Penfold. Uh, and it's a simple question, but an interesting one. Neil Penfold asks whether the League One and League Two salary cap should be a flat limit that applies to all clubs or a ratio of a club's turnover. Right. Uh, so yeah, flat or soft caps, that they both have some merits. The, the EFL in League One, they have gone for... Uh, what's referred to as the flat cap, which means that there is a there's a squad spend of 2.5 million in League One and 1.5 million in League Two. Um, it, it does level the playing field. It, it does give the likes of um, Accrington Stanley and Rochdale Football Club uh, a, you know, a, a greater chance of being promoted. And you know, part of me thinks, well, that's actually quite good news. Um, there is a danger, I think, um, that if if you're a club that is presently under the cap, rather than being good for your wages, it could be could, could be. Um, and this is an issue that I have with uh, with the Baroness and our credit card is that the limit becomes a target. <laughs> yeah. And therefore, if, if you're spending two million on wages at present, the agents come in. So, well, look, guys, you, you, could, you could spend two and a half. You know, yeah, therefore, yeah. my player wants a pay rise. Yeah. Um, so you have to be a little bit careful with that. Um, there there are – loopholes is too harsh a word. There, there are exemptions to the cap, which we've discussed before. So it, it has some merits. The soft cap, which is a percentage of income, um, clearly that does favour – the bigger clubs, the likes of Portsmouth, Ipswich and Sunderland in League One, who have bigger crowds. And, and we see that in the Premier League. And, and you and I, we, we, we both support clubs who 
at, at the start of the season, our first objective is to avoid relegation. You know, I, I'm, I, I suspect if, if we're honest with, with our listeners, neither of us are expecting to get into the Champions League this season. Not this season, maybe. No, it might be a bit premature, but, you know, given our sudden desire to sign young people, who knows? Um, yes, no, you're absolutely right. I would, you and I both, the first thing that happens when the fixtures come out is to make sure that we think we can finish above the three promoted clubs, basically, of course. Um, now, having said there was good news for the people who had questions at the end, uh, this next question is slightly bad news because it's a very good one, but it's long. Um, in an ideal world, this would be one to talk about around the pub table. Uh, the question comes from Liam Blaney. Now, Liam is a man of Kent, he says. Now, for, for overseas listeners and maybe some of the people uh, here, I should explain that you are either a man of Kent or a Kentish man, depending which side of the River Medway you inhabit in that county. Obviously, in the olden days in Kent, a woman could live where she wanted. She was still just a woman because it's very definitely man of Kent and Kentish man. But Liam says this is a question that's always puzzled him. Why does a county the size of Kent only have one football club, Gillingham, while other counties in the north have many, many more? Surrey and Sussex are also fairly bereft. Is this down to historical trends and proximity to London? And why have no wealthy investors in and around London taken advantage of this potential opportunity? And do local football associations provide funding to professional clubs? Now, Kieran, I can answer the first question a little bit if I leave the financial ones to you, because... Uh, Back in the day, Liam, there were a lot of clubs in counties like Surrey and Sussex. The very first meeting of the FA in 1863, for example, had Blackheath, which was from Kent, also Crystal Palace, which was from Kent, Surbiton FC from Surrey. Um, and in the 1880s, there were, there were more than 40 clubs in Shropshire that were affiliated to the FA. But what tended to happen is that in the south, which was dominated by the gentlemen and public schoolboys of the FA who didn't like competition and didn't like the idea of professionalism. In fact, one club in Hampshire was kicked out of the FA for training. They were called training. The FA thought this was terribly close to professionalism. But in the north, of course, where you had a captive audience and uh, the, the government eventually changed the law so that uh, work had to stop in factories and mills at, at one o'clock on a Saturday, and, and the, which is why we have three o'clock kickoffs. And the factory and mill owners decided to invest in football teams to get the workers from their factory into their football teams and basically ostensibly were professional. They, they paid money to get players down from Scotland. So uh, by the time the league was formed itself in 1888, um, they were all Northern teams. So in the South, basically, the, most of the teams fell away because there was no competition and you ended up with the big towns in the counties uh, being, you know, Gillingham, Swindon, Shrewsbury, people like that. So... Uh, other versions of that history are available, but that's the reason. There, there, there used to be clubs all over those counties, and that's the reason why there aren't now. But the financial question, Kieran, are very interesting. Why have no wealthy investors had a look round at clubs like Gillingham and thought this is close to London, this could be a, a gold mine? Um, it, it's because I think, A, they'd rather invest in uh, London itself because of the, the right. joys of being in the capital. Uh, if, if you take a look at the population of these towns, if the three largest towns in Kent, we've got Maidstone, who, remember, were a football know. league club. I remember them beating us at Sellers Park. Yep. Um, they've got a population of 113,000. Gillingham's 104. Dartford is 87. And then it sort of drops away quite a lot. Um, so is, is there a sufficient support? So if you are a wealthy owner... Are you going to be able to to generate a support base 
which will fund that club in the longer term? Mm. Um, and, and would it actually be cheaper to go and buy Charlton, you know, something of that nature, or even Palace? Because you, you can buy a ready-made club with a ready-made ground, with a ready-made support for a bit more, and, and you don't have to go through... Um, you know, if, if, if we've decided to you know, in, invest £100 million into Dartford Football Club, how many years is it going to take to get to you know, a, a standard where you're going to get some form of return on your investment, not financially, but in terms of getting the, the kudos and the, the TV appearances that you crave? Mm. Gillingham had uh, the hump with Charlton for quite a few seasons a while ago because Charlton started running free coaches from Medway Towns to Charlton Games and Gillingham thought that was unfair eating into their fan base. But the final part of that question was one that I never thought of before. Do local FAs have any say in, in professional teams? So would the Kent FA have any investment or say in Gillingham Football Club? No, none at all, because we, we've got the three governing bodies effectively in football, which is the, the Football Association, the Premier League and the EFL. So therefore, Gillingham fall within the umbrella of the EFL. Um, if anything, the, the Kent FA would be keener to support you know, the likes of the clubs of Dartford and Maidstone and, and those, um, you know, Royal Tunbridge Wells and so on, um, because that's that's the, the people that actually sit on the committees of, of the Kent FA. Um, I mean, the only way they do get financial support is through the, the FA Trophy, the FA Cup and the VARs. Right, OK. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insights, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Uh, now, our next question comes from uh, a regular listener and a regular question asker, actually, uh, Christopher Habib. Christopher says, in today's world, does a footballer need an agent? Um, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but he talks about reading Ian Wright's book when he said he'd rather have a solicitor who takes a couple of hours to look at a contract compared to paying an agent 20% for five years to keep looking at the contract. Uh, no, there's no obligation to uh, have uh, have an agent. Uh, I mean, what we are finding with with some agents, and remember, we had, we had Jonathan on, who was an agent a, a good few months ago on the show, is you've got to look at the level of service provided by the agent, and, and there's sort of there's sort of basic, advanced, and premium. Um, and, and some agents they will effectively run your life for you. They'll run your bank account. They'll pay your bills. They they will organise your uh, your MOT on your car, and, and or not the the football ever have a car more than three years old, and so on. Yeah. And for that, they that they they effectively charge a management fee mm. um, for the basic um, services offered by agents. It would just be uh, potentially perhaps a cut of the transfer fee, um, and the player might either pay him a fixed amount or an agreed amount. It could be just of his first year salary. Um, in, in the lower leagues and things of that nature. So some agents do do very well, um, but uh, it, a lot depends upon who the agent's representing. Um, and if you are a, 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 an elite player, 
you you don't have the time to go through the small print of the 200 emails that get sent to your uh, to get sent to you on a daily basis by people who want your signature or your face next to a product. Mm. So therefore, you rely on the agent and your management team to sort out the the good from the bad in terms of those offers. Mm. Uh, Chris Whiffin, uh, which is my probably my favourite name of the day, Chris. Uh, Chris has a question about Championship newcomers, Wickham Wanderers. Uh, Chris says he's had a look. I don't, I don't know how, but Chris has had a look. And he can't find anywhere how much money the new owner has injected into Wickham. What are their finances like and how much cash will um, Gareth Ainsworth be able to spend this season? Right. The the new owner is a guy called Rob Kuhig. Um, Wickham lost £667,000 in 2018, 869 in 2019. Uh, they were owned by the trust. Mm. My understanding, having been in contact with somebody connected with the trust, was that they were genuinely worried about the club going out of business, and this was pre-COVID. Right. So, so what this guy, who is an American lawyer, uh, has done, he's come in and he's effectively covered the costs for the rest of 2019-20, um, Wickham's cost under Gareth Ainsworth, uh, that, that squad cost zero. Yeah, it was all free transfers, wow. apprentices and so on. So you've got to give Gareth Ainsworth a huge amount of credit when, when you compare them to, to the likes of Ipswich, Pompey and yeah. Sunderland, who we mentioned earlier, who, who have spent big sums. Um, there is no evidence of how much money um, the club will have to spend next season. All, all I would say is that Wickham's TV money uh, goes up from one and a half million pounds to seven million. So, um, you know, how much of that Rob Kuhig is going to give to Gareth Ainsworth, I, I couldn't tell you. Yeah, and they're a, a club as well who will be desperate to get the fans back because you, you'll remember from the old day. I mean, Wickham have got a surprisingly big fan base considering where they're, they're based and away from home, they take a lot of fans as well. So, They'll be missing out. Well, I don't suppose they, well, you, people are still buying merchandise, aren't they? So, I mean, but th- hopefully, we're assuming it will be one season in the championship, but that could be enough to secure their future for two, three, four years. Yep, yeah, I hope so. I mean, and certainly the last time I was there, it was a, an enjoyable trip, a Glen Murray hat trick. So both of us can can cheer that one on, Kevin. Well, I'm, why would I cheer a hat trick for Glen Murray for your team? Which Glen not- Murray? Yeah, no. Glenn, Glenn Murray transcends sport. He's, he's, when he's when he's playing for your team, he's Glenn Murray with a small G and a small M. He's he's not Glenn Murray. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Glenn Entwistle is a Blackburn fan, um, and he adds, "Someone has to be now, Glenn. Uh, none of that. I don't want that sort of talk. Stand proud. You you support a very famous historical team, uh, but I I I really like this question because I think we've all been through this." Um, Glenn says him and his mate, and he's not going to name his mate, but he says him and his mate grew up in the big spending Jack Walker years. And his mate says that given Man City's recent victory over UEFA, Blackburn should just let the Venkies buy their way back to the Premier League. Now, Glenn says that he's tried to explain countless times that UEFA and the FL rules are very different, but his mate won't have it. So can we explain it to him? I, I really feel for Glenn because we've all got a mate that simply won't believe that a taxi driver doesn't have to hold his cape around a pregnant woman while she has a wee. So I, I, we've all got mates like that. I just go, no, it's true. Dane Bowers told me. I know. It's, you know so so it, can we help Glenn here? You and your showbiz pals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I won't tell you what Dane Bowers claimed once about policemen, but it was. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't. It definitely wasn't true. We told him not to, to not to try it. Uh, so yeah, but can we help Glenn talk his mate round? Um, in in terms of 
trying to buy a promotion. Actually, we've already said, you know, Leicester and Bournemouth and QPR, they all did it. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it, it, it can be done. The trouble is what happens if you spend the money or I think the, the word our prime minister would use would be spaff the money <laughs> against a wall and it doesn't work out. And in that, I give you Stoke City 2018-19. Yeah, yeah. Stoke City had a... £56 million wage bill. They spent £67 million on a phobie, Clocus, Etobu, Tom Ince, don't know whether his mum came along as well, um, <laughs> and uh, James McLean, and um, and they finished 16th. Yeah. So, you know, that was uh, 100 and, £123 million on player signings and wages, and it got them 16th. So it's fine if it works and you get out of that division. Yeah. When it doesn't work, you end up like... Aston Villa did under Tony G. Um, you end up with Stoke. I mean, Stoke is fortunate in the sense that they have owners who are multi-billionaires. So therefore, if they lose money, it's it's not a problem for them. But Stoke now have had to make some significant cutbacks in expenditure uh, in order to comply with FFP. So if 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 you say sod it, I'm, we're we're going to we're going to spaff this year, and it works, then that's great. Um, if it doesn't, you're left with your pants down. Yeah, I, I I felt so. I've got a couple of mates who support Stoke, and that season, not only were they spending that money, but they, that was a season they tried to change from being a long ball team to a passing team, and it didn't quite come off. It was like watching a wolf get stuck halfway. It wasn't pleasant to watch. Um, so, but so, so I mean, obviously, Glenn's right. The EFL rules and the UEFA rules are different, aren't they, in terms of FFP? Um, they they are uh, to a certain extent. Um, I mean, they set different targets. I mean, the, the broad principles are the same. Is that they set a, a limit on your losses over a three-year period. Um, and both of them act in hindsight. I mean, and I think that's part of the problem in that uh, you know, until we have some – this was some, one of the issues that, that Damien Collins raised when, when we interviewed him on Thursday. Until you have real-time monitoring of, of clubs overspending, then you, you can't actually um, – sort of act during the season though you know I'll, I'll be the first to admit I think the the EFL would have a a really tough job in doing that and yeah, it's, it's not what we go to football for no that's true um our next question and I've got good news we might we might not get to Colin Telford but I think we'll get as far as Dave Parker um our next question comes from Robert Jan Viverberg now uh I really hope I've Spelt that. I know I spelt it correctly as I've copied it down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good at spelling, actually. Um, I hope I pronounced that properly. I, I, when I was doing my notes last night uh, during a bottle of wine, I thought I've got enough pub Dutch to be able to pronounce that properly. That I, I lost confidence just as you were answering the last question. Uh, so I do hope, Robert, that I pronounce that correctly. If not, feel free to tweet like everybody else does. Uh, Robert's question is an interesting one. Uh, everybody's question is interesting, but his question is around the building of new football stadiums. Uh, Robert says, I realise this is an emotionally charged subject. Yep. But given the enormous costs involved, Brentford apparently spent £71 million on their new stadium, and the fact that they'll only be used once every two weeks, why aren't more, uh, and he specifies London football clubs, building and sharing new stadia together? Are emotions overweighing financial benefits here again? Yep. Um, it's a fair point, though, because QPR have been after a new ground for ages, and just down the road, Brentford have, have built a new ground. Why, at any stage, did QPR not talk to Brentford? And, and I know it's different, but, you know, the Milan share a club, they didn't hate each other when they started sharing a stadium all those decades ago, did they? 
That's that's right. Well, I mean, you know from your own experience, you've shared with both Charlton and Wimbledon. Well, no, well, well, no, they've shared with us. I'll stop you there. And it's it seems right. it's, it, we didn't share. With, they shared with us, and very, still very much didn't stop them being ungrateful bastards all the way through. But carry on. This, you know, it seemed that it seemed that offering to share our ground and keep them out of financial difficulty was was not a decent gesture after all. But there you go. Well, uh, and we've done the same at Gillingham, and, and we hate yeah. Gillingham for that yeah. as well because. Um, also down during that period, um, Charlton were advertising in Brighton. Why travel all the way to Gillingham to go and watch your team? We'll offer you. We, they were offering free buses yeah, for, really? for Brighton fans to go and support uh, Charlton, it, which uh, is which for some still rankles, of yeah, course. Of course, because we're football fans. Yeah, yeah we, we we don't forget ever. Um, it simply it's it's part of your identity, mm. your football ground. Um, you know, you've said this in the past, and I've said, you know, certainly when we were at the Goldstone, you've said the same about Selhurst. It may be a bit of a dump, but it's our dump. Yeah, and yeah. It, 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 I think that emotional issue um, is absolutely critical. It means that if, if, it, if it was a municipal stadium, or if we were sharing, you know, if you were sharing with somebody else, and, and it was a it was a crap Tuesday night, and you're playing Burnley, you might think twice about going because. I'm not going to Selhurst. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. what what people forget is that they assume that going to a football match is just walking to a stadium and walking home again. It's not that. For you, it's the Porson's Arms. For you, it's sitting next to those same guys. For you, it's it's meeting all your mates before the match. That is the football experience, which non-football fans, I think, at times don't quite get as part of British football culture. Yeah, you've, I'm, I'm welling up now. I really miss it. I really suddenly miss Sellers Park so much. Um, to answer one part of Robert's question as well, though, and this is something we've always argued that you know, most clubs, most stadia, and this is changing, it shouldn't be used only once every two weeks. It should be open and available every day to the community for all sorts of things. So, um, yeah, mate, I'm so miss football. Uh, Matthew Honeyman. Matthew Honeyman starts his question by saying, I'm a whole city fan for my sins. Now, people, I can't say this enough. Stop apologising for who you support. The only person who needs to do that is Kieran. Um, uh, Matthew, I've subbed your question a little bit. I hope you don't mind. You can blame Derby if you want. Uh, Matthew's question basically is, Hull are currently repaying a loan from the owner at 4% interest. The owner has asked for £40 million to sell the club, even though they don't own their own stadium. £40 million seems a lot. Relegation will bring a massive loss of revenue. So Matthew's question, is there a way this can end without the alarms, the owners completely hollowing out the club to get their money back? And just, I mean, before you answer the question, Kieran, it's almost considering what the alarms tried to do to the club at the start, and the same with the Venkis to an extent, it's almost a miracle that those people are still owning those clubs in the first place, to be able to have this question asked about them, isn't it? Yeah, it's, they're not the most popular. Um, I think they turned down £100 million when Hull were in the Premier League, so that they're probably feeling a bit sore. My understanding is that that £40 million asking price has now been reduced to around about half of that price right. because, of course, they've been relegated to League One. Yeah. Um, and they also sold a, a couple of players in January um, so it, it could be that uh, a prospective new owner could get the club at a substantially lower fee. A lot will revolve around the KC Stadium. Um, that is owned by a company called Super Stadium Management Co. Limited, uh, which is also owned by the Alarms. 
And uh, that rents out the stadium to um, Hull AFC Football Club, not Hull City Tigers Limited, um, as uh, the alarms have rather provocatively called that the company which owns the football club and Hull FC of of Super League. So I I think, uh, again, going back to what we were talking about uh, in respect of Charlton and and Thomas Sangard, when you buy the club, you you want to buy the whole bundle together. Um, So... It, 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 given that Hull are starting the season in League One um, and given that the Alarms should have got back some of their loans from the sale of those players in January, um, they could come out of it effectively getting their money back um, and the, the new owners could buy it at a substantially reduced fee. Yeah, the owners, the current owners, I mean, they really alienated the, the fans when they tried to change the name to Hull Tigers. Uh, and the fans have been voting with their feet recently. But I would have thought this was a decent prospect for any owner. I mean, it's a it's a proper one-town club. I mean, I know they have to compete with, with two big rugby league clubs, but they'll, they'll fill that stadium if they're in the Premier League or if they're doing well in the Championship. So there's money to be made out of, God forbid that I said that, but there is money to be made out of buying a club like Hull, isn't there? I, I think they're a club with uh, with potential, Absolutely. Um, and they've been in the Premier League on, on a couple of occasions. So yeah, they've shown that they can get there historically. Uh, in terms of the stadium, um, um, it's not bog standard, to, to quote uh, the, the expert uh, from the EFL uh, in respect of Derby Stadium. Yeah, and Derby's isn't a bog standard stadium either. It's, it's an excellent. Um, so I think there's lots of positives. And as you say, it's uh, they've got a catchment area where they're not competing with other football clubs. Mm. And I'm on a bound to say this whenever we mention Hull, white phone boxes. Uh, although they're not white, they're cream. And they don't have a crown on the top either, like the phone boxes in the rest of the country because of their anti-King stance in the Civil War. I admire that. And they've got some fantastic bands. I was a huge fan of the Red Guitars yes. um, and the Luddites and so on. So, yeah, they, they've got a fantastic musical history. Yeah, well, well done for not mentioning the House Martins because they were one of my least favourite bands, mainly because of London Nil Hole 4. I can... There's quite a few things that make me resentful for a long time. Uh, to, to quote the great Mark Lamar, I can forgive, but I can't forget or forgive. Um, uh, Andrew Wilson. Uh, Andrew Wilson has a question on the original Premier League TV deal and the split of the money within the leagues. It, Andrew says, is it correct that the Football League was offered up to 25% of that deal to approve it, but preferred to do its own deal? And if that is correct, English football could have looked very different had they not done so. I've I've had a look at this. I can't find any such offer. Uh, when the Premier League was formed, or rather prior to the pre- when the Premier League was formed, um, the split was fifty percent to the top division, the old old Division One, twenty five percent to Division Two, twelve and a half percent to Division Three, and twelve and a half percent to Division Four. What we now have. Um, is 86.3% going to the Premier League. Uh, and if you're in League Two, you get 0.7. So yeah, that's just uh, indicative of the way things have become so skewed. Yeah. Um, if the EFL were offered 25% at some point, so yeah, I've looked for it, I've not been able to find anything, um, I, I guess they would be feeling pretty sore uh, at present. Um, so so you know, the, the championship is getting half of what it used to, and um, the leagues one and two are getting less than a tenth of the, the share of the, the football money, of the football broadcast pot, um, compared to 1992. 
Right, I've got good news for Dave Parker and Colin Telford. I think we're going to get to both of them, actually, even though Colin's question really is one for uh, a pint around a pub table. But Dave Parker, um, and I think Dave echoes uh, the feelings of a lot of people, especially when we've been talking about Wigan recently. But Dave basically says, can you explain why the EFL deducts 12 points for clubs going into administration when you're giving a club in trouble even more problems? Um, well, the, the aim is to uh, try to be more carrot than stick right. uh, in the sense of if clubs know that they will get an automatic 12-point deduction and you know we, we've looked at the morality surrounding the Wigan issue, but ultimately the EFL, I think, had little choice but to, to apply that deduction. Um, if, if clubs know that they're going to get an automatic points deduction, then, then those club owners who had historically taken the view of, well, we're going to try to uh, buy promotion. And if it doesn't work out, we'll just put the club into administration, buy it back from the administrators and start all over again. Um, Can you say that 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 system, which did exist to a certain extent between 2002 to 2004, 13 administrations, 2005 to 7, 6, 2008 to 2010, 9. So, you know, just over the eight-year period, we had 28 uh, football clubs going into administration. That, w- that was ludicrous because the clubs were taking a cavalier approach to their finances. So as a consequence of the introduction of these rules, and, and I, you know, I'll be the first to admit, because I was no fan of ITV Digital, um, you know, that, that did cause problems for EFL clubs. It has led to fewer clubs going into administration as a result. And remember, it's, it's not just the clubs, it's, it's the club's creditors. It's the people that, that uh, you know, drive, the, drive the coaches, provide the, the, the transport services. It's, it's, the, it's the people that supply the pies and the, and the St. John's Amgen. They were the people that were getting stiffed all the time. Yeah. And, um, and- so yeah, we, we've got to think beyond just football. Yeah, and and also back in the day, sort of two thousand and two onwards, as you say, there was a a spate of clubs waiting for the end of the season to go into administration, wasn't there? And then, as you say, because then there would be no penalty if there was a penalty, it it wouldn't count. So that's why the EFL sort of closed that loophole as well. So Colin Telford, uh, well done for hanging on. Uh, Colin starts his question this way: Having listened to you for a while. And that's the sort of intro that could go both ways, frankly. <laughs> that's, a, that's the sort of thing when a teacher says, having listened to you for a while, oh, my God. Um, <laughs> uh, and well done for not saying anything when I said go both. I just realised I shouldn't say go both ways in front of you, should I? Um, Colin says, <laughs> Colin says, that's my fault. I shouldn't even have mentioned it. Colin says, you're obviously both romantics when it comes to football, but you're also aware of financial realities and the potential social good of football. Balancing all that, what do you think your clubs, so Palace and Brighton, should target as success and what would bring you most joy? Um, well, most joy. I mean, success would be always being a division above Brighton. But that's, I think this is a really interesting question. And again, it's what one knows why I said I'd rather answer this around a, a pub table with you and Colin. But also, I think it, age-wise, it's, we asked this, when we got in the FA Cup final in 2016, our Palace pod, FYP, said, would you rather win the FA Cup? or stay in the in the Premier League. And I was amazed that so many fans said, I'd rather win the FA Cup, because in years to come, you won't be able to remember which season it was. We finished 14th and which was 15th, but you'll always remember the FA Cup. But we, when we looked at it, it's, it's almost split down the middle. It's, it's age-wise. Old, older fans older fans want to stay in the Premier League. Younger fans want to win stuff. So 
I mean, success for us, Kieran, I, I think we're both in the same boat. 95% of the people listening to this would love to support a team that's that's in the Premier League, mid-table or, or not. So success for me at my age is having a club to support and a club that does its best to help the community, really. I mean, a, you know, a trophy every now and again would be nice, but just being in the Premier League, I think, is a remarkable success compared to where we were in 2010, for example. Yep, yeah, yeah. And, and for me, you know, the, the results on the pitch, we, we finished, what, 15th last season? I'll tell you what, yeah, if we were mid-table, I'd, I'd be absolutely delighted. Yeah, yeah we, we've had relegation fights yeah. two years out of the last two. Um, so, yeah, mid, mid-table, I think we'd be absolutely delighted. Um, you know, in terms of football romantics, why do we both go to football, Kevin? Yes, yeah, we, yeah, we enjoy the 90 minutes, but it's shared experiences, it's memories, it, it's friendship. As well, you know, it's the people that I've met through supporting my club, like Big Dave, like Uncle Ian, you know, like uh, you know, Crispies and so on. You know, these these complete lunatics who become part of your life and they stay part of your life. And I know that they're going to be with me until, you know, and we're all reaching a certain age until we, we start to pop our clogs. Yeah. Um, and it gives you that identity. The football is sort of the central point through which all of that universe revolves. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm welling up again. But um, I, I'm slightly worried about Uncle Ian, I have to say. <laughs> was, was this a long-lost uncle that you met through football? Or was this just... Oh, no, no. I, he, he, he's the uncle to at least 200 people that I'm aware of. <laughs> okay, yeah. I always get slightly suspicious of a bloke in the pub who says, just call me uncle. Right, oh, fair enough. Um, we'll leave it there. Um, thank you for all your questions today. They've been interesting and fascinating as ever. Um uh, and we've kept it to below an hour. A guy will be pleased. I've some, I've, does guy have to pay somebody overtime when we go above an hour? Because he's obsessed with the fact that we don't go above an hour. I can't. Oh, he pays guy overtime if we go. Oh, if, if, we, if, if we get, if we keep it under our hour. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. Guy's got bonuses like Terry Venables used to have bonuses. He's got all angles covered, mate. Um, if you if you want to ask us a question, and, and it could be as big or small as you, as you want, it questions at priceoffootball.com. And as ever, I will hand you over to Kieran for our final message. Well, thanks again, folks, for all your feedback. Um, thanks for keeping us on our toes. Um, if you could go across to that that big purple icon on the Apple Podcast app uh, and give us five stars, uh, we, we, we we appreciate it. it, it and, and it's 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 not for us. Uh, you, you, you could write you know, whatever you want. You could write it to juvenile. You could write uh, your favourite cheese on you. Want you could write it would be better with the Swiss Ramble and Justin Morehouse. Yeah, we don't care. Um, but it. According to producer guy, it makes a difference. And apart from that, stay safe and look after yourselves. I'm for the ball.